we can use technology to put our most constrained resource, which is our human expertise, our human capital, so that they are focusing on the novel and the complex issues where they provide the most strategic thinking and value. And instead, they are not serving just as routing engines for known work. They're not answering the same repetitive duplicate question over and over and over again um, and finding ways to do that with technology where they can stay you know, in their tools to focus on where they can deliver the highest impact. Welcome to The Law in Black and White, a podcast featuring Jonathan Greenblatt and myself, Brian Parker, the co-founders of Legal Innovators, an alternative legal service provider. We have been friends for over 25 years. We're both lawyers with lots of opinions. In this podcast, we will look at current events, the business of law, innovation, and diversity in the legal industry. Occasionally, we'll even talk about sports. As the name of our show suggests, we recognize that there may be aspects of the law that require our thinking to go beyond just the black and white of the law. We share what we know, what we've learned, and what we're still learning. John? In honor of Women's History Month, we are grateful to be joined by Kathleen Kate or by Dr. Frida Polly and Lydia Petrakis. Kate Orr is the Global Head of Practice Innovation at Oric and one of the ABA's 2020 Women of Legal Tech. Kate works closely with clients and practice groups to improve the delivery of legal services through technology, smart staffing, streamlined processes, and data-driven decisions. Prior to her current role, Kate represented commercial clients in complex trial and appellate litigation at Oric. And having been a litigator, I totally understand, Kate, why you would uh, want to do something else. We'll talk about that during the course of the discussion. Um, Dr. Polly is an award-winning Harvard and MIT neuroscientist turned entrepreneur. Frida is the CEO and co-founder of Pymetrics, a soft skills platform that uses behavioral science and AI to make unbiased workforce decisions more accurate and fair and unbiased. Lydia Petrakis is Senior Corporate Counsel and Digital Strategist in Microsoft's Corporate, External, and Legal Affairs Department with a mission to drive industry-leading innovation to accelerate the digital transformation and modernization of a multidisciplinary department's ways of working. In today's episode, we're going to look at the intersection of law and technology. Kate, Frida, and Lydia, thank you so much for joining us. Brian, you want to kick us off? Sure. And I agree with John and, and welcome. Thank you all for making, uh, making the time. Just to set the stage for the conversation a little bit, I want to share with the audience uh, legal technology, also known as legal tech, refers to the use of technology and software to provide legal services and support to the legal industry. In the past, legal technology was used to refer to law firm technology for practice management, billing, document storage, or accounting. However, this has evolved as firms seek to operate more efficiently across the board from artificial intelligence or AI to automation to blockchain technologies and more. Now, more than ever, legal technology can be used to adapt a law firm to modern challenges of practice in a post-pandemic world and deliver better, faster, and more comprehensive services to clients. It also enhances the lives of lawyers with remote work capability, 
constant connectivity, better timekeeping, and billing. Let's turn now uh, and chat with our experts to understand better this now-evolved intersection of technology and law. So to the panel, you all work at a fascinating intersection of technology and the legal industry. And we all know the legal industry is, uh, shall we say, known for being slow to adapt to new technology. I was using mag cards, actually, until I retired two years ago. And maybe you could tell us a little bit about why you got into this, your education, your professional backgrounds and interests, and how you moved from whatever you were doing into this space. So why don't we start with Dr. Polly, because she's at the, at the top of my screen, and we'll go from there. Sure. Um, so I was a cognitive scientist at Harvard and MIT for about a decade. Really liked the research I was doing, <clears throat> wanted to do something more applied with the science we had developed. Um, went to the business school at Harvard for two years to kind of understand how we could commercialize the science. Saw recruiting there and realized that what was missing from that equation was really trying to understand people more holistically from a cognitive, social, and emotional perspective rather than just relying on a resume or a piece of paper. Um, and that's kind of how I got into, uh, that's how the idea for Pemetrix came to be. And, you know, I think more broadly now over the last, you know, six years that we've had a product and market, really understanding that this idea of capturing people from a behavioral perspective in terms of who they are beyond what's on their resume, not only applies to recruiting, but also applies to mobility, learning and development and all sorts of other areas. And in particular, what it can be incredibly helpful with is removing the biases that exist in more traditional tools that focus heavily on experience, uh, which unfortunately then track sort of demographic and socioeconomic, uh, you know, aspects and, and privilege. So um, it's really exciting. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. We're thrilled to have you as well. Kate, let's look at this first. Uh, same question to you, but obviously from the law firm perspective. And then Lydia, I'm going to going to turn to you from the law firm client perspective in a minute. But Kate, what do you think about it? And why, why did you end up moving into this space? So as you noted at the start, I was a litigator for many years. Um, and as delightful as that was, <laughs> billing my time in six minute increments, <laughs> it got to a point where I was like looking for a change. But I loved where I worked, loved working at Oric, And I really loved getting shit done, for lack of a better word. Um, and so about six years ago, I had the opportunity to pivot into what was the precursor to my role, really focusing on improving the way we're delivering our legal services to our clients and improving the attorney and legal professional experience. So how they do what they do to get things done. And legal tech is just a natural part of that. The legal tech market, as you noted, is booming. And it's an important part of that sort of people process technology trifecta. And so I quickly found myself at the forefront of the tools in the market, how to best use them, because sort of continue to keep my eye on them in my current role. So Lydia, you see this from the perspective of not only a client that uses external lawyers, but also as a tech company that is very much involved in all of the issues in virtually every business space. So maybe you can share your perspective and, and why and how you uh, find this interesting. Yeah. So I was like many, you know, I went to law school as the, you know, what's poli sci major and didn't know about all the interesting, amazing things you could do with a law degree. And 
I quickly had opportunities to work um, in-house during my time at law school and really fell in love with this intersection of the business and the law and the ability to really like drive that business philosophy as a legal professional. Um, and then when I got to Microsoft, I felt like I was the kid in the candy store. I finally had access to all of this technology and I was like excited to use it. But then I noticed a lot of times others were not sharing that same excitement and using it. And so I started working on a lot of different projects and initiatives as one of my like side fund projects to help um, attorneys and other professionals in our department really see the value of how you can evolve how you work and enjoy what you're doing with your time and make a larger impact by using technology to augment it. Um, and then now recently, I've been able to take that as side passion and projects and leading initiatives to making it my full-time job as a digital strategist for our modern CELA group, where we really are focusing for our corporate external and legal affairs of how to drive our digital transformation and modernization of our department and when working with our partners like our law firms and industry. So um, really interesting. And I, and, I, and I appreciate our panel. We've got some diversity here from uh, folks that um, invest and look across broadly uh, in, in Kate and what, well, at least in part of her responsibility uh, over at work. Frida leading a, an emerging technology legal tech company. Uh, and then uh, most people, I think, have heard of the little tech company that Lydia works for uh, in, uh, in Washington. So um, I'm going to ask each of you, it's a two-part question. First part's going to be the same, and then second part, I'm going to vary. So uh, let's see, Kate, why don't we start with you this time? I wonder, so the two parts, and, and the first one's pretty easy, if you could tell us how you think about sizing legal tech, like is this big, small, how's it growing, that sort of thing. And then as you, as you think about this, how do you, how do you ensure buy-in from leadership when exploring new technology? I know that you look at that both from your place and, and, and what others are doing. So I wonder if we might start there. Sure. So sizing the legal tech um, it's big, <laughs> over $2 billion, and it's growing. <laughs> um, it's it's no longer just a passing fad or a cottage industry. I mean, I think it's it's a real, a, a real industry. Um, there are many point solutions out there. I think we're seeing in the market some more platformization or move to that, some consolidation um, to bring tools together, partially because there's so many out there, but uh, also because from a user perspective, you know, having 25 logins is never the best solution. So it's it's big, it's real, it's complex, um, and it's a full-time job keeping track of it. <laughs> as far as uh, the buy-in goes and the buy-in from leadership when exploring technology, kind of getting a little bit into the weeds, but from my perspective, having a process is critical, regardless of where you're trying to achieve the buy-in. It's really important to have a process for understanding what the challenge is, what the ROI is going to be, and really ensuring that whatever it is you're exploring aligns with what your strategy and goals. Uh, without those three components, buy-in is impossible to get. Thank you, uh, Kate. Uh, really helpful in kind of shaping our perspective for the audience here or with the audience Lydia, same first question for you. Um, you know, how do you think about the legal tech market? Uh, obviously, Microsoft in so many buckets, but if if you could um, tell us how you guys think about it, and then either from your own perspective uh, as an innovator, from what you hear from clients, you guys are either both coming out with new things, acquiring uh, new technologies, partnering with people. How are, from an end user perspective, are you guys thinking about 
overcoming, you know, sort of this resistance to change uh, question, right? And how to, it's a, it's a change management, um, you know, kind of question. So how do you think about it both for yourself and then, you know, to help end user clients get over that hurdle and start using some of these tools? Yeah, great question. So for the first one, uh, similar to what Kate is saying is, is we're seeing continued growth in point solutions. It's an ever evolving market, but, you know, there is starting to be a shift and I hope for an in continued shift in that platform space and interoperability space. And we're focusing on that internally in our own department too, is how do we take the great innovations and work that we've done and then make it scalable on a platform um, and focusing on interoperability. For overcoming resistance to change, that's a great one. And I think it's an important thing that we think about is, is no matter where our roles are, is, is that change management, you know, skilling and a process and thinking through it is becoming an important skill for everyone, whether you're attorney, paralegal, supporting professional, our department's really diverse. Our corporate external legal affairs has everything from project managers to data scientists to engineers to your traditional legal professionals. And one of the most important things to overcome that is, is the culture journey, is, is embracing that culture and building that culture day in and day out. And the best way to build culture is in my opinion, is through stories. That's how you build it, is just you curate and amplify the stories of the subject matter experts and the individuals that are engaging and showing them up as the heroes who really represent that future state um, and reinforcing recognition of that great work. And it continues to attract others. Um, and then you just have to be mindful of people no matter where they are in their journey. They've been in a company like mine, it's existed for a while. There's some people that have been there for a long time and they're like, okay, another thing, what are we doing? How do we move forward? And really helping them see the intentional nature of what's going on and how it'll impact them. You always have to remember the the what's in it for me scenario when you're presenting and talking. Um, and that leadership buy-in that Kate was talking about is really helpful. And we're just starting to see a lot of that with our leaders. And it's great. Thank you, Lydia. Great uh, perspective. Uh, Frida, I'm going to come to you. I think we've talked about the size of the market, but if you'd like to add anything, I think that's uh, that's awesome. And as we talked about uh, when we when we were inviting you on, your technology and what you guys are doing sort of touches, uh, you know, what we do. You have different approaches. You have some folks that are, you know, in uh, I guess arguably in your lane, the suited and the thines, and you have Parker Analytics to do stuff, does stuff a little bit differently. I guess the one consistent challenge, and you can help us understand other pushback that you have gotten on your wonderful tool, which I think really innovates in a meaningful way um, and allows people to think about talent differently. And that is when people start to think about AI or think about predictive technology, this question of diversity bias comes in um, and is a data bias. How do we get over that? So I wonder, generally, when you have such a innovative technology like you've come up with, what are you seeing and what, what challenges are you hearing from the customers? And then maybe how do you respond to the, that, that question of bias in the data? Potential bias in the data. Yeah, I mean, Sorry. look, I think we could literally spend two hours talking about this, but I won't. So I think that like there are different ways to think about this. I think um, first you have to define bias. I think that's poorly defined. Um, we define bias as having disparate impact, which means that your tool selects people of color, women, or some other group at a lower rate that it would select, you know, Caucasians or men, right? So because I think there's multiple definitions. Once you define bias as disparate impact, um, you can actually calculate some very straightforward metrics on your output and say, you know, are my algorithms showing disparate impact? Yes or no, right? And that's what we do. So the way that we try to ally 
you know, um, sorry, allay any fears that people have are with with data. Um, and so we just recently put out a, um, a study of, of close to half a million people showing that from a gender and race perspective, as well as a disability accommodation perspective, we have no disparate impact. So I think that quite frankly, and we're pushing, the, we're trying to push the field, more people to do this in the field, because ultimately at the end of the day, talk is cheap, as they say, and I can say all day long that my algorithms are unbiased, but unless I can actually show you that with some pretty compelling and large data sets, it's really hard to be able to, to believe that. That's one thing. I think the second thing is there are more and more initiatives, both from a regulatory perspective, as well as a, you know, a private company perspective that are pushing folks to come up with standardization. So there's this initiative called the Data and Trust Alliance, which is a bunch of big corporates, um, you know, came together and sort of built a framework to look at things like bias. And they're pushing more and more vendors like Hemetrix to, to uh, produce these bias reports. We were actually helpful in building the framework and we're going to be hopefully putting together, you know, a report with a client shortly to show again that we don't have any bias. And then last but not least, there's all these sort of, you know, regional jurisdictions that are weighing in on this. So New York City's one, California's another that are really not only looking at artificial intelligence, but looking at all automated um, systems in the employment space and asking for, you know, essentially disparate impact audits. So I think there's either voluntarily or sort of less voluntarily vendors in the space will become increasingly required to produce these types of reports. And in my opinion, it's long overdue because it's a little bit like emissions testing for a car. It's pretty straightforward. You don't have to understand how the engine works to see if it's what it's emitting. It's the same for any kind of automated hiring system. You just need to look at the output. And I think once you look at the output, if it's on a representative large enough sample size, hopefully you can have some confidence that... Um, these tools don't have bias, or if they do have bias, you can think about ways to alleviate that. So that's our perspective. Yeah, and and I know John's going to jump back in here, but are there general, as you as an entrepreneur and as a CEO in in a in a relatively new space, are there um, other forms of pushback that you get to you know using this new technology? Not, I think a bias is really the main one, um, you know, concerns about discrimination. Um, and I think so long as you can really try to allay those concerns, again, with all the ways in which I described, then I think you're in a good spot. I think the only other thing is that people have this sort of utopian other state that they compare automated systems to. And they're like, oh, these horrible automated systems, you know, X, Y, and Z. And you're like, you know, first of all, Joe Fuller did this great piece of work called Missing Workers, showing that basically 99% of companies use automation in their employment processes. So there is no alternative state, unfortunately, fortunately or unfortunately. And then secondly, you know, there's just like decades worth of research showing that, you know, removing bias from human decision making is, is basically impossible. So I think that's the only other challenge is that when people are you know, sort of casting aspersions on automated systems, it's like, well, but everybody's using them. And, and by the way, the alternative of human decision making really has never been shown to be that great. So mm-hmm. from our perspective, first of all, it's not an either or, it's an and. And secondly, you know, it's like, let's try to make these systems, which are already basically in, in ubiquitous use as, you know, unbiased um, as they possibly can be, which is completely achievable in my mind. So. No, I think that's uh, I think that's fair of putting it in the larger context of businesses and efficiency. Um, so, really, a helpful perspective. Um, go go ahead, Frida. No, it's not even efficiency. It's that you know, once the internet came to be, and instead of receiving three applicants for each job, you know, the likes of ZipRecruiter and LinkedIn allowed you to get two hundred and fifty. It's sort of like you had to you had to respond in kind, right? So it's really it's 
efficiency is maybe the wrong word. It's just that everything has become digital and therefore incredibly easy to scale, including applications. So if applications are easy to scale, then reviewing those applications had to sort of, you know, um, you know, sort of respond in kind. So. Yeah, that'll be interesting to keep teasing out that uh, diversity piece. But uh, um, John, over to you. Well, I, I'm interested from each guest's perspective on how you think about the role of technology as you see it from your points of view. But also, I'm going to ask the question that I put a pin in before. If you could weave into your answer how you see the impact on on the work-life balance questions and the impact on a particular lawyer who is using the technology. And this isn't to take a view on it, but just to say, we often debate, I think, whether technology has actually made things better or worse for lawyers because um, you know now clients expect that you can turn to more things instantaneously than you used to be able to do before. I could tell you lots of stories about you know the state of technology when I started mm -hmm. practicing compared to now, but that would be amusing, but not advance the ball. So let me start with Lydia and then uh, Kate and then Frida. So uh, the role of technology in our work. So um, I'll start with you know our company's vision, Microsoft's vision really is to empower every person and organization on the planet to achieve more. And I mean, that's a large goal and we're going after it, but that is what the heart of technology can do is, is help achieve that mission and augment our, our humans to be able to do their best work and put their most valuable expertise where it matters. So where I think technology and its role is really important is to create the leverage to support the exponential growth in our industry. So the legal industry and the demands and the needs are ever growing and it is only growing at a faster rate um, than we've seen before, especially with the regulatory wave coming in different areas. So really is, is we can use technology to put our most constrained resource, which is our human expertise, our human capital, so that they are focusing on the novel and the complex issues where they provide the most strategic thinking and value. And instead, they are not serving just as routing engines for known work. They're not answering the same repetitive duplicate question over and over and over again um, and finding ways to do that with technology where they can stay you know in their tools to focus on where they can deliver the highest impact and i i see that as a great benefit because what more exciting thing for me is is that i can use technology to automate the things that i don't have to do every single day and focus on where i find the most passion and can do the most exciting work that really drives that ultimate goal or in my, you know, in my case, being an in-house, you know, attorney is, is the business velocity and helping them championing where they want to go. Great. Kate, do you have anything different to say about that or um, what's your perspective? So I think about the role of technology is sort of two-pronged. One, you know, from a law firm perspective, you know, our, we're in the business of serving our clients. And so we leverage technology to be as efficient as possible, but also on the quality side. Uh, so technology isn't just about saving money or being efficient, but improving the quality of what we're doing. Importantly, it is only part of the process, and I never start with technology. You can have the greatest tool in the world, but if you don't have the right people using it at the right point in time, it's useless. So I really think of technology as, as, as part of a solution, but it's never the only solution. And I would echo what Lydia said on sort of the, the human impact and, and the impact on work-life work balance. I mean, we all have tech fatigue 
and we are because of our phones and you know we're constantly connected and we're on 24/7 but i really focus on the ability of technology to i phrase it as free you up to do what you went to law school to do um so just as a surgeon isn't taking blood in the hospital a phlebotomist is doing that there are things that our lawyers don't need to do shouldn't be doing there's a tool that can do that so it's it's like lydia said freeing up everyone to do their highest and best work. So uh, on that point, I think we'll have to continue to ask ourselves as a profession, whether while it's freeing us up to do more of what we're good at, it's freeing us up to do too much of what we're good at so that it burns us out. Um, Because it's true that we don't have to do the things that we don't want to do because technology does it for us. But that also then clears the decks for the high pressure work that we do want to do up to a limit. So anyway, we can continue to talk about that uh, as the day goes on. There's also, uh, not to interrupt, there's also sort of another component to that, um, playing devil's advocate. Not only is it sort of forcing you to do that high level, high pressure work the entire time, but there's also an important consideration of training. Um, And, you know, it, it is important for a junior associate to do certain tasks at least a handful of times so they understand the what and the why and the how. Um, So Mm -hmm. that is also something that I think about a lot, Um, balancing using technology as a replacement for thing and and what training are you taking away and how can you be sure that folks are still learning what they need to know um, to grow in their roles? Yeah. As a supervisor of junior attorneys, I used to go nuts when someone would say, uh, well, I'd find a case and I'd say, how come you didn't find this case? They say, well, it didn't show up in a Westlaw search. I'd be like, well, thanks, but that's that's not the answer I'm right, looking right. for. You still got to do some lawyering here. <laughs> anyway, Frida, on to you. Yeah, sorry. And the question was just sort of how do I think about using technology? Yeah, how do you, th- what do you, think, how do you think about the role of technology from your particular perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think I sort of clarified it in the previous mm-hmm. comment, which is that I think, you know, it, 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 very similar to what others have, say, have said, which is I don't imagine that technology should reverse, replace face-to-face, you know, in, interactions. Um, but, you know, if you're sitting through 250 um, applicants' uh, resumes to get to those, you know, list of much smaller list of who you want to bring in for an interview, that's already being automated. Um, and so why don't my, our, my perspective is like, why don't we use the best type of technology to do things that are already being automated rather than very not ideal technology that leads to a lot of bias and exclusion. Um, so for, for us, it's not about finding ways to replace humans with technology. It's more about um, updating the, the technology and what it can do. I always compare what we do to sort of lap, you know, to regular tech, to like laparoscopic surgery to regular surgery. You know, it's it's much more refined, it's much gentler, and it yields much better outcomes than sort of the blunt brute force tech that, you know, quite frankly, is leading to the unequal distribution of opportunities that we see in the world right now. So. Thanks uh, for for that perspective, um, and we we hit on this a little bit in the in the prep. So we're gonna hopefully you you've all now had time to sit and think about this question that you told me was good and provocative. Uh, Kate, I'm gonna come uh, I'm gonna come to you first. Uh, being Women's History Month, you know, I did want to. I mean, I think that there are a lot of parallels, right? When we talk about you know diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, and we talk about you know some of the challenges that women face uh, in the in the profession. 
like law, I think we still see, you know, maybe too wide a gap. I shouldn't say maybe, I think there is too wide a gap. What have you experienced in that, um, in, in that context? And how are you, you know, thinking about, you know, either helping close that gap or create, oppor- you know, more opportunities for women within technology? So in some ways, perhaps I'm blissfully ignorant. I mean, I'm, you know, we've all, we've all experienced <laughs> challenges based on a variety of issues. You know, I've been the only woman in the courtroom yeah. that everyone looks to to pour the water. Like right. we've been there. We've done that. Right. Uh, take, take the notes, exactly. whatever. Right. Yep. Same. In same this here. space, <laughs> in the legal tech space, there is certainly a gap, um, but there are also a lot of women in the space and there are a lot of women in the legal operations space, which necessarily aligns with legal tech. Um, so I'm not the only woman in the room, which is great. Um, and I think if you're smart and motivated, especially in tech, it matters less what you look like. But as far as what I do, we do, what we're focused on, I mean, it's it's just constantly looking for opportunities to recognize women in legal tech. We have a, a tool called the Observatory. Anyone can use it. It's on our website where we track hundreds of tools in the market. And one of the things we track is diversity and leadership. Um, and so it's just, it's, mm-hmm. it's actions like that, recognizing it and looking for it uh, when making tech decisions, making decisions as to where to invest. Um, it's just those everyday actions that, that I focus on. So picking up on something that you said there and coming squarely back to the, the, the question I posed uh, either yesterday or the day before, um, I hear this sometimes, right? Like after uh, George Floyd, everybody, you know, I shouldn't say everybody, but there was a very big push in our industry uh, on diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, et cetera, et cetera. If I were to respond with your own words of, hey, it doesn't matter what you look like. If you're smart, there's a place for you. Are we making too much of gender now? Should we be, you know, should does it need to be a headline that we talk about? So I don't think so. My response would be, why would we take our foot off the gas pedal now? Even if we're, you know, approaching equality um, or God forbid women actually started making more money than men. That's great. Like men, men had their shot for a few (laughs) centuries, many centuries. So um, I say, why stop now? Um, The fact that we may be getting closer, we're not there yet. And um, yeah. So floor it. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, you're not going to get a, a lot of arguments here. Maybe a little uh, amen corner from uh, John and I. But uh, Frida, you seem to, to, to really grasp on to that last comment by Kate. What, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I mean, look, I, at least in entrepreneurship where, you know, I lie, I, I don't think there's even close to a parity of representation in any, by any stretch of the imagination. I think it's like 2% of enterprise software companies or, you know, venture-backed startups are run by women. I mean, that doesn't even come close to 50-50. So we have a very long way to go. And, you know, and unfortunately, there's just so much research showing that access to capital is just so much harder for women to get. And um, again, back to this human bias question, there was a study done by MIT where they basically had men and women pitch the exact same idea and uh, men were funded at twice the rate, you know, so it, it really just shows that it isn't like, oh, they're seeing less women or this. I mean, that could also be true. But at the end of the day, it's just quite frankly, it's it's bias. I mean, that study just proves it so clearly. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a lot of work to do. And, uh, you know, I think it has to be attacked by, you know, multiple angles. And I, I actually do think that entrepreneurship is one of the more challenging places because, 
you know, these are all private partnerships. Nobody is like, you know, there are no public boards like putting pressure on, you know, sort of investors to to have greater representation, which I think has been successful in other areas, right, where there's been like public pressure and so on and so forth. And so, you know, how we get there, I think, and, and yet, you know, wealth creation, I mean, there are two industries that create wealth for folks. It's, you know, finance and entrepreneurship. And if women are continually underrepresented in those two areas, it's going to be, you know, a continued a continue challenge. So I think we have a lot of work to do, but I'm optimistic that we'll get there. Yeah, thank you. And, and you know, our same approach of being data-driven, I think the examples that you offer there are, are quite powerful. Um, and we did... Um, with a, a female leader uh, over in Europe uh, that's leading uh, an equal pay initiative over there. I think you're, I mean, it couldn't be any better said as Kate um, not only says um, uh, that men had a you know few hundred centuries or a few hundred years or whatever, and you know we're doing the same work or even better uh, in many cases. And you know what's the reason for disparity, Lydia? I, I want to come to you, and you know, however you would like to dive into the question, but. You know, I guess the you know two sides of the coin are um, one. You you probably have a lot of resources to innovate, being at, at Microsoft. Um, but two, you know, it's no longer the company it was many many years ago. Meaning that it's a big Fortune fifty, Fortune ten uh, kind of company. How do you you know what what do you guys see as is your role of leadership um, in the industry um, and uh, really setting forth a path for this equality that Frida and uh, and Kate have been talking to us about? Yeah, so I I love a lot of the comments that came from both Kate and Frida. Uh, Kate, I love the the floor. And I I we have a long ways to still go as a legal industry to ever reach that. And you know, listening to what y'all were saying, it always makes me think of one of my favorite RBG quotes. When you know, she was asked, you know, when will there be enough women on the Supreme Court? And her answer was nine. And I I love that one. <laughs> So, you know, I, I too, um, you know, has been the only, you know, woman in a room in different places. And I also have, um, I'm a person with a disability. So I have a mobility disability. So I have also in a wheelchair. So like when we're on a podcast like this, right, you don't see that or hear that. And that's been interesting during the pandemic. So I think we have a, a long way to go for women, especially um, women of color as well. So I think it's important to be thinking of, you know, all the different facets in women. And I think we all have a responsibility to help that. And Microsoft is a really large company that is an area that we put a lot of intentional effort in our culture and our diversity and inclusion efforts. And it's made a really big difference for me as a, a woman in the legal industry to be in an environment in an area where we are seeing many, many more women. And I am rarely the only woman attorney you know, in the room, we still need to continue to grow women at all levels and leadership. We focus and intentional um, with our law firm partners about trying to encourage them to have the diversity and inclusion numbers as well. So I think we have a role to be able to do that because we have a large buying power of where we put and spend our money. And, and you know, I'm there's a long way to go, but I'm really proud to be at a place that focuses on that. And it's made me be able to show up to do my better work because I did not have as many positive experiences as a woman and a woman with a disability and other legal avenues as I do now. I was just going to ask a follow-up question to that whole to that whole discussion, and uh, it's it's almost probably the exclamation point on the day, which is, what advice do you give to women, young women, other women who are considering the kind of career path that you've pursued? Let, let's start with Kate. Um, do it, be creative and, and, and don't be afraid of breaking the mold. 
Um, especially as a lawyer, you know, you go to college, you go to law school, you're a summer associate, you clerk, then you're a first year. It can be scary to step away from that or to think about doing something differently. And my advice is to do it. Um, and now's the time to do it. And now's the time to to break the mold. And so just to not be afraid to try or to ask questions. I frequently ask perhaps dumb questions about technology because I'm not a technologist by training, but asking the questions and the whys and the hows um, are incredibly valuable in sort of building your career in that space. And Lydia, you just went through your personal path, which was you know very moving. What advice do you have for other women in terms of what you would tell them to do if they are interested in this? Yeah, I'd say similar to Kate, just continue to go after it. And I love, Kate, that you mentioned curiosity. I think that is one of the most important things is sometimes we can be afraid to ask questions because we don't want to be like, look like the person that doesn't know it. But if you have it, the other people have the same question in the room and you can learn from that and others will be appreciative and you can be seen. So, you know, when I entered in tech, I didn't have tons of tech background. And I got excited and I spent time with engineers and like, hey, help me whiteboard and help me understand this. And now it became something passionate and people, when they see your curiosity and something they're interested in, they really want to help and learn. So I, I think that's super important. And the other is, is you can kind of pick your own adventure and make your own you know, avenue and impact. So like when nobody asked me to necessarily go pick up a project of how can a legal department more effectively use teams and their collaboration space, I just started doing it and it provided opportunity after opportunity, networking ability. I met with senior leaders all over, people across the department and, and able to really build that. So if you find something you're interested and passionate about, go do it and don't just accept the status quo like oh this is the process we've always done i guess i should do that like use that new perspective and make make your path thank you and frida same question to you and if you have any observations about what the industry can do to make the path a little bit easier to pursue or make people more aware of it please feel free to weave that in um, yeah, you know, I, this is a tricky one. I think I don't have a great answer as to kind of what I think, you know, how, how we should go forward to try to implement change other than obviously, I think there are, I mean, I'm a one note piano, I guess, in the sense that I think there are actually a lot of technology layers in the talent space in general, that when leveraged properly can actually massively improve the situation. I think the challenge is resist, you know, human resistance to those types of changes. And so how do we overcome that? Right. So yeah, I, it's a great question. I don't have like a, a wonderful answer to it. Um, I just think it's, you know, continued, pro it's sort of like the most boring answer, right? It's like just continued pro continually trying to make strides in, you know, all directions and everything that people always talk about, whether, you know, it's you know, like technology solutions and allyship and, um, you know, women and, you know, promoting women in different fields. I mean, there is no one ma magic bullet for better or worse. I think it's just continued driving forward in, in all those different areas. Awesome. Thank you all for that. I think, um, you know, when we think about and, you know, make the same comment in February, right? Like the, we, we shouldn't confine the celebration, this conversation that we're having to one month, but, you know, be it as it may, I think that this is a great way uh, to, to punctuate the end of Women's History Month. 
We want to thank the three of you for coming on. I'm going to move us into a little bit of a, a fun segment before John officially closes us and talk about our pet peeves. We uh, always go to the guest first, so you guys can uh, either raise your hand and volunteer or uh, go to one of you. And, you know, something fun, something uh, you can't let go, something that's bothering you. And and by the way, I think, uh, Kate, uh, the the hashtag uh, to this podcast, and thank you, Florit, we, we will attribute that to you. I love it. Um, but uh, yeah, Lydia, what is your pet peeve for the week? <laughs> uh, mine is, is the scraping of the knife on a plate. That's my one of my fiance's really bad habits. And man, it's nails on a chalkboard for me. So <laughs> you can see him now. As soon as he does it, he gives me that look like, oh, I'm sorry. You know, so that, that's mine. <laughs> I think you must know okay. my son-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we've all been trapped in the house a little more with, uh, with, with COVID, huh? <laughs> uh, Frida, why don't we come to you next? I don't know. I uh, Sorry. <laughs> I got distracted by the horns outside and I put myself on mute. Just, I'm sorry, repeat the question. I apologize. Uh, it's just, what, what is your pet peeve? What, what's bothering you this week? What can't you let go? Aside yeah. from the horns, that it's really, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, um, I think pet peeves, this is more of a general one. I think folks that are, that it's a pet peeve of mine in life. Like folks that complain, but then don't offer a solution in general. Like I think that it would be, it's so easy to find so many things to be, frustrated, upset, and everything else about, and we could all fall into that. And I am so tempted on a daily basis, but it doesn't get you anywhere, just like I tell my kids. Um, And so just, you know, let's think, let's be solution-oriented rather than problem-oriented, because the problems are easy to find, the solutions are a lot harder to come by, so. Frida, I love that one. Like, I was listening to a colleague the other day, just talking more specifically on, you know, technology adoption. And it was, you know, really encouraging her team to be power users of a tool and don't complain unless yeah. you try it. Like you, by trying it, you earn the right to give feedback. And I think that is such a golden yeah. nugget and a thing to really advance yeah. is the tool, like first version, yeah. we're, we're trying to go fast and prototype, like use it and then you earn the right to give feedback and then it gets better. So, so uh, off to the end of the pet peeves, but it reminded me of that. No, I love <laughs> that. I love that addendum. Thank you. Uh, Kate? So mine is in line with Lydia's, just a, something, a pet peeve in my house, which is laundry next to the hamper. Next to the hamper. Not in the hamper, right, not in. next to it. I, I cannot get beyond that pet peeve at home. And then I would say at work, um, I would have echoed Frida's pet peeve, like coming with a problem and not a solution. But also just folks not asking why. Sometimes I feel like we're all like sheep marching to the edge of the cliff together and we're just going to jump because everybody's jumping. And just not taking the time to say why is a, a pet peeve of mine. Oh, great. Thank you, uh, Kate. Laundry next to the basket. Yeah. Have you thought I'm guilty of, of that, uh, but of course it's just me and the dog here. So. Have you ever thought of moving the basket slightly left or right? Or it doesn't matter. Just making a bigger basket? It doesn't matter where it is. It doesn't yeah. right. Okay. Um, <laughs> anyway. John? Yeah, I want to clarify, Lydia, in case my son-in-law listens. When I said you must know him, he's not the one who scratches the plate. He has your pet peeve. I won't mention on the podcast who he has the pet peeve about, who is also related to me. Um, but anyway, my pet peeve, you won't be surprised to know, Brian, and apropos of today's discussion, as always, involves technology. I just want to ask what the uses of the check engine light that comes on periodically and goes off periodically in our cars 
it says nothing, tells you nothing, and it's totally unreliable because it doesn't mean you have to check your engine. So I, <laughs> you know, that's my only pet peeve for this particular, and it, it's apropos because of one of my other daughter's cars recently that this light comes on with and has no relationship to what's going on with the car. Uh, technology. All right. So mine, and this won't surprise John either, being the guy from California now living on the East Coast, of course, I'm going to complain about weather. So there's no um, complaining. I, you didn't hear Kate's pet peeve? <laughs> no, 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 no. I got a solution. I think we have to, to put it into gotta, place right now, Brian. No, no. no he's <laughs> I mean, Frida's question. Yeah, Frida's observation. I won't be stopped. I'm thinking that we're headed into spring, and then the next day, it's 32 degrees and it's <laughs> raining for the next 10 days. So my favorite time of the year is the start of the baseball season and the Masters. So it's supposed to rain for the next 10 days, including on opening day. My solution, um, Frida, John, I am going to get myself a parka and I'm going to be sitting out at opening day, rain or not. So I'm, uh, I will tough it out, but I don't have to like it. Uh, I'll go back over to you, John, to <laughs> yeah, close this I, out. Kate, uh, for New England, <laughs> uh, we hate whiners in New England. So the, the whining, the no whining rule is, is in place. You can look for me on on TV. I'll be out there. <laughs> <laughs> As Brian said earlier, we want to thank all of our guests once again, Kate Orr, Frida Polly, and Lydia Petrakis for joining us today in honor of Women's History Month. Brian and I thank all of you, the audience, for listening to The Law in Black and White. We hope you enjoyed our discussion. You can find us at legal-innovators.com for more insights than we even went over today. And you can subscribe to our podcast and follow Legal Innovators on social media to see what we're up to generally. We look forward to sharing another podcast with you soon, and be safe in the meantime.